It's about sex and death and a chemical high. With that opening line, author and Fordham grad Andrew Valentine takes us on a mysterious and erotic journey in his latest novel, Bitter Things. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, my interview with a vampire, writer. But before digging our teeth into his novel, I asked Andrew to tell me about vampire history, culture, and the allure of the undead. To talk about how vampires actually became so prevalent in today's culture, we really have to turn the clock back a couple of centuries, if you will. Actually, there were... um, there were uh, vampire stories that go back thousands and thousands of years, um, back to the ancient Babylonians. Uh, there's uh, the the Lilith story that predates the Bible about Adam's first wife. Uh, Lilith is sometimes considered a demon, but she is also considered one of the original uh, vampires. Um, now, I never heard that story. You never heard that story? No. Could you tell it? Um, well, uh, I could tell it to you in like 20, 20 words or less. Okay. Uh, the, the story goes that uh, Adam had original wife before Eve uh, named Lilith, and uh, she uh, did not want to be subjected to his superiority, his dominion, which is what Eve was eventually tasked to do. She, she would have to do what the husband said. Uh, Lilith was a very free thinker, and she did not want to do, to do that. So... Um, Judeo-Christian tradition holds that she was actually possessed by a demon, uh, and that's why she had this rebellious streak. Um, And that demonic aura about her, or that demonic demonic possession, um, made her um, something of uh, a creature that sucked the life out of Adam to the point where uh, God had to get involved and, uh, and rescue Adam from the creature. And uh, Lilith was then banished out of uh, out of Eden, and uh, he, then God created uh, Eve. Vampire stories have been around for thousands of years, as I mentioned, but they really did not come into their manifestation that we know today until 1731, when uh, there was um, this small town in Serbia was experiencing uh, this rash of deaths, uh, human deaths and animal deaths, and um, they couldn't figure out what was going on, but then they narrowed it down to um, the idea that one of the recently buried individuals in their graveyard was rising from the grave and killing these individuals, killing all the people and the animals. So they exhumed this person. They exhumed several different bodies, but they found this one body. Uh, His name was Arnold Poale, P-O-A-L-E, and he... Um, was found with fresh blood on his on his corpse, so they figured that his corpse was going around sucking the blood out of out of the other people. And um, what was really going on, probably, was that there was some sort of play going on, and this poor fellow uh, was buried alive. And in an effort to get out of his c- coffin, uh, he scratched at the surface until his fingers were bloody nubs, and that was the blood. Or the, the plague itself might have made him cough up blood and he might have choked to death on that. But um, when they exhumed this body, they saw the fresh blood on it and um, a military committee was formed uh, with several medical doctors and clergy got involved and this became, they wrote a report that was published in 1732 and this report became so um, powerful uh, that, uh, or popular rather, that this obscure little uh, vampire myth 
just burned across the countryside to the Western Europe, where it really became, really took on a life of its own. Again, to give the pun. Um, so then the uh, the kings and queens and their drawing rooms and their their courts just thrummed with delight and horror about the vampires. So vampires really became popular in the mind of Western Europe in 1732. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV. I'm your host, Robin Shannon, speaking with author Andrew Valentine about vampire literature and his new book, Bitter Things. So, Andrew, explain Lord Byron's relationship to vampire culture. Lord Byron uh, got together with some friends, uh, Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, um, and um, Lord um, John... William Polidori, and they got together, and because they couldn't go out and frolic in, in the water in Geneva, they decided to stay indoors and develop the most scary story they could possibly come up with. Mary Shelley, of course, came up with the Frankenstein story that weekend. Um, at the same time, Byron came up with a vampire story, and it's interesting to note that the vampire and Frankenstein were born on the same weekend uh, by a, a competing group of geniuses. Byron eventually abandoned his idea for the vampire. And instead he wrote this poem called Darkness, which was great. It's really cool. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into the selfish prayer for light, and they did live by watchfires, and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour but by hour... Will, John William Polidori, the, the doctor, picked up the vampire... Um, uh, fragment and decided to run with it and developed his own novel about it and he based the vampire on Lord Byron himself. Lord Byron, I don't know if you're familiar with Lord Byron, but he was very famous for being um, a seducer of of men and women and he um, he was famous for ruination, like he would get involved with married women and then there was scandal and the women couldn't be seen in public and that type of thing. Uh, so he uh, William John William Polidori took that and uh, twisted that around and made him a vampire. And the vampire does the same thing, but in a much more uh, physical physical way of ruination. Skip, skipping almost 100 years forward to 1897, uh, Bram Stoker, of course, um, developed Dracula. Dracula, of course, is based on the real-life uh, Dracula named Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I know a little bit about him. He was He killed... Thousands and thousands, thousands of people. Thousands. Yeah, one of the bloodiest reigns in human history. Yeah, he was uh, he was a really bad guy. And, and while Byron may have been the ruination of people socially, Vlad Tepes was the ruination of people physically. They, he uh, would would stab people on these uh, telephone pole length pikes and turn them upright, and they would writhe in pain and agony until they eventually bled to death. And Vlad Tepes would sit there and you know watch. He would have his dinner and just you know watch the show. So theater. Was, so <laughs> theater for that time, theater, of, time exactly. of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Environmental theater, exactly. Uh, not a very good guy. Not not a guy that you would want to have dinner with. <laughs> um, well, it's strange how it went from the, the vampire-esque 
theme went from these, I understand the erotic side and this horrible Vlad the Impaler mm-hmm. to almost a romantic sort of hero now. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, if you look at vampires, um, especially today's vampires, they're more of like the bad boy who plays by his own set of rules. And what's what could be more sexy than that? Um, and how did it go from that, Andrew? How did it go from this, you know, horrible being, you know, to this really kind of cool Johnny Depp, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Depp with fangs? <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was um, the way it really came about was probably with the publication of Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice. Uh, and that was in 1974. And she did something that nobody else did. She actually wrote a vampire tale by, told by the point of view of the vampire himself. And that vampire was really torn and lovelorn. He loved this this woman and he couldn't have her because he was a vampire and she was human. Um, and that whole moral ambiguity really uh, had a lot of um, resonance with the, the people at the time because of it was coming on the heels of Watergate. And whenever you see vampire popularity, uh, vampires really become popular usually in time of, of moral ambiguity. But the idea of them becoming so sexually attractive to, to people really hit with her. And then um, Laurel K. Hamilton uh, put together a series of books uh, for her character named Anita Blake. Then, of course, uh, Charlene Harris came along with the, the Suki uh, Stackhouse, theory, uh, Stackhouse series. And now, of course, they're very, uh, very sexy creatures. They're um, they're mostly written. The most of the books that you're referring to are written by women and for women. And if you look at the uh, the bestseller list, the ones that are really rising to the top are written by women. And uh, women really find uh, something very sexual, uh, sexually attractive and and uh, gratifying about them. There are websites devoted to. Um, to vampire romance. As a matter of fact, there's one called VampireRomance.com. Uh, there's another one called Paranormal Romance. Uh, so they're very, very popular right now. And it really comes down to um, the ideal. Uh, a vampire now can be seen as the male ideal, whereas Eve, to go back to that earlier conversation, might have been the female ideal to a man. Uh, a vampire can be the male ideal to a woman, where they, they never change. They never have to, you know, they never have to go on diets. They never have to, they don't get the pot belly. They're always drawn to their heroine. And they see something in the heroine that no one else sees. If you look at um, Suki on on True Blood, uh, Bill is not able to, sorry, Suki is not able to read her, his mind. So that makes him more of a mystery to her. And he is attracted to that. But then again, there's Eric, who's also attracted to her. For and her. Eric is the vampire. He's the vampire. And Suki is, is the female who can read minds, but she can't read the love of her life's mind. That's right. Which actually turns out to be one of the things that she likes about him That's in right. the True Blood That's right, uh, HBO it's series. Like a, a safe place for, for her to go to, to be with him so she doesn't have other people's thoughts invading her own mind, which is which is really neat, really interesting. Um, but then there are other vampires like Eric who... who uh, f- find something special about her. Um, so there, that's one of the things, that the, the vampire can see something in the heroine that nobody else sees. Um, and then just taking it down a notch to the, the Twilight series, for example, um, um, just reversing that, uh, Edward, the vampire in that series, uh, can read minds, but he can't read Bella's mind. 
Uh, so there's something intriguing to him about that. So again, there's something there that no one else sees. Now, novels in general have always kind of had an escapism quality about them. So um, what makes people want to escape into books about vampires as opposed to escape into, you know, I don't know, the, the pirate movies or something along those lines? Well, I'm sure the pirate movies are very popular as well. <laughs> um, but they're, the thing that I think is really fascinating to people about vampires is their immortality. Uh, if you are in a in a moment in history when there's so much moral ambiguity and you're not sure what's going to happen, we have two wars going on. We have uh, economic crises. We have uh, disease, and you know you hear these terrible things on the news about people who are being captured and held against their will, like that poor girl in California. Um, it, there's so much questioning going on. There's something that uh, is permanent about a vampire. Certainly, he's immor immortal or she is immortal, and um, no matter what you're going through, they've gone through it, and they can say, this is just a moment in time. So there's a certain level of comfort in that. Um, and, of course, people like to see that uh, the vampire is a creature who is basically human, or, or today's vampire heroes, are basically good, good people who are just consistently forced to do bad things. And so we enter Bitter Things, Bitter things. <laughs> from Andrew Valentine. <laughs> so, okay, I'd like to uh, sort of start out with a synopsis of Bitter Things. Ah, a, a synopsis of Bitter Things. I would say, in one sentence, um, Michelle Pappas, the uh, protagonist, has to rescue her husband, who is being held captive by a female vampire. Now, what I found interesting is most books that I've read have had the male as the one who had to be the, the rescuer of the female. So here we have a total different flip. Tell me about that. That's exactly right. I wanted to take the traditional um, the, tradi the traditional mythology of vampires, the one that everyone knows, the mists, the, the crucifix, the holy water, all that, and flip it on its head. The idea that a man rescuing a woman uh, is traditional, and you see that you know going back to most of most of what you uh, most of the traditional vampire stories that you see, but what I wanted to do was to say um, we're in a different time now. We're in a different age. Women are certainly much more um, much more powerful than they used to be. Um, they still have some inroads to make, of course, across the across the globe. But in America, women are certainly have come a long way. And um, the idea was that uh, women can. Uh, well, actually, it's been my experience that women tend to be a little bit stronger than men, um, and certainly emotionally and psychologically. And um, the idea in this story is that the man is a little bit uh, weaker. He's he's scarred. Women tend to be um, the nurturers in in relationships, and men profit from that. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll be right back with author Andrew Valentine and continue our discussion on vampire literature. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. Coming up this morning on Cityscape, we'll delve into the paranormal of New York City. We'll talk to a woman who knows all about the ghosts of Central Park. That's this morning at 7.30 right here on 90.7 FM. It's WFUV.org. We'll see you then, if you dare. Uh, Andrew Valentine with Bitter Things. Um, okay, so we're, we're talking about the main characters now. Uh, we're talking about Michelle, 
Michelle. Who's married to Scott. Scott. And there was actually a part in the book where you were talking earlier about um, how Michelle is sort of the nurturer to Scott. That's right. Um, and he has some trouble sleeping, correct? That's right. He does. He has so some trouble sleeping that. because of something that was really very terrible that happened to him in his life when he was about 10 years old. Um, I don't want to give it away. Right. But, um, but because of this thing that happened to him, he's emotionally scarred. And that leads him to, uh, to take risky behaviors. Uh, to seek um, to seek uh, love uh, from from various sources, and his wife is 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 there to provide that love. But he also needs uh, needs to be satisfied in other ways that uh, get that kind of get them into trouble. Okay, and can we go through the characters? And you just tell me a little bit about sure. the the people behind the characters here. We have Young. Or Gina Lee, tell me about tell me a little bit about her. She was very interesting in the book. She was interesting, yeah. She uh, she was um, a character that uh, is a composite of a number of, of uh, women that I met, um, and uh, her her appeal and her her draw, her alluringness uh, certainly was uh, was um, drawn from several different people. But uh, she is uh, she is uh, very who, sensual, she's very very sensual. jealous. Very jealous, but she, she also, um, her her driving force is also love. Um, she she has uh, she loves someone who she's trying to protect and help, um, and then she ends up um, falling in love with Scott as well. So there's a bit a, li a little bit of a, a, a confrontation um, with love. One of the things that uh, is always more interesting in in a book than good versus evil is good versus good. So you're kind of rooting for. Uh, you're certainly rooting for the hero, the heroine, uh, if it's done correctly. <laughs> um, but in a way, you could kind of see what the uh, the antagonist is doing. And if you're kind of rooting for the antagonist a little bit, then it makes the drama a little stronger and a little richer. And that's really what I was trying to trying to do there. Now, who I found myself rooting for a little bit was Zamora. Zamora, as much as she is uh, a villain, uh, for lack of a better word, she's a vampire. She really is. Um, she's one of those heroic vampires that she's trying to. She's got her own sense of morality. She's got her own moral code that makes a lot of sense uh, to her, certainly, and I think will make sense to a lot of people who are reading the book. But it comes into direct conflict with Michelle's desire to save her husband. So of course, there's going to be conflict there. But Jamara really um, is interesting in, um, and this is one of the things that I flipped on on its head, was that the. As I mentioned earlier, the vampire stories really come from um, Eastern Europe, and therefore there's such a European influence in the way we currently think about vampires. But uh, uh, culturally, every culture across the world has its own vampire story, has its own vampire mythology. Um, and I thought what, what I thought was really interesting was that there are vampire myths that go back centuries, centuries, um, in Africa. And I thought... Why do the vampires always have to be these pale undead creatures? Why not make them um, African? Mm -hmm. And this this character actually comes from uh, Kenya, mm -hmm. which is uh, which which actually has a little bit more cultural cachet because Barack Obama actually comes from Kenya, or at least his heritage is Kenyan. So there's a little bit of that there. Um, but what's interesting to her is that um, to me about her is that there tends to be a little bit more of that um, that innate wisdom that you would find in a, a, an Aboriginal society. And I think she brings that to her keep uh, and, and kind of governs that way. 
and a wisdom that comes from being alive for you know, hundreds of years. Certainly, certainly that. <laughs> and yeah. a sort of patience that she has with Yong, even though she can be a little, you know, young and and excitable. <laughs> I guess that's a way to put it. <laughs> a little impatient, you know. Well, um, Jamora, as you say, has been around for centuries, and uh, she tends to look at her lovers as children. Um, and she tries to take care of them as children, and she tries to be a good mother. They refer to her as the goddess queen, but she's really kind of a, a mothering fig- figure. Now, there's a character, uh, Lord Andy. Lord Andy! <laughs> the knower of all, because this, this Lord Andy, he's kind of like a the Van Helsing-like character who kind of helps the audience with some of the rules. The wise to, one. Uh, yeah, right. the he's wise one. The wise one, one who, who uh, lays down the law and tells you what is, what is possible and what is not. Um, he's the one who really explains the idea that the vampires do have reflections. If, they, if light can reflect human bodies, light will refre- reflect the dead body that has become animated that is a vampire. Um, if holy water doesn't burn us, it's not going to burn them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a, if a, a bullet is not going to kill a vampire, then a wooden stake is not going to kill a vampire. So was that part of you trying to make them more human? The idea really was there that um, maybe it was some of the, the psychological uh, training that I had or the scientific training that I had. And I was just looking at a lot of the vampire myths and they just didn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, the idea that um, if a vampire can turn into mist, then why would he turn into a bat and fly? You know, he could gut through doors. You know, there were just too many. If he crawl up uh, walls and jump, and there were just too many different things that didn't make any sense to me. Why turn into a bat? Why turn into a wolf? Um, just to make it cool? All right. There's definitely some resonance there. I'll give you that. But, you know, I wanted to tell a story that that narrowed the focus and really had these strict rules. And I think the, the stricter that you are, um, and you're going to see a bondage metaphor here, but the stricter that you are, the more room for play you have. Now, we're going to have to, you, you brought it up. <laughs> we're going to have to delve into the, the bondage erotic uh, parts of the book, um, only because there were there were parts I had to I had to blush. Did you do that on purpose? Was that your intention? Um, I'd like to say I was thinking about the reader at the time that I wrote those, <laughs> but I think I was more thinking about myself. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the most interesting parts of the book that I thought um, you're not going to read it, are you? Um, well, uh, on page one thirty three, you're talking about Scott. And you says, and you said, uh, he never imagined he'd know such pleasure from such shame. Oh, yes. Okay, very Freudian. Yes, that's, that's very Freudian. Mm-hmm. And um, if Freud was alive today, he would say a lot of things about today's vampire culture, the whole love, uh, the whole sex death thing that Thanatos and Eros. And the idea was to convey a lot of Freudian psychology into the book. In bondage, uh, people are aroused by the idea of shame, especially the, the masochistic uh, peoples, the, the servants of the masters. Um, the idea of being held against your will um, and forced to do these things that you really want to do anyway, uh, there's certain joy and, and comfort, of a little freedom in that. So in it's almost uh, uh, Orwellian to say there is uh, freedom in slavery, but there really is in, in terms of this bondage. Um, now, the idea, of course, is that Scott really is held against his will. Um, and there is not role-playing going on. So this is not necessarily uh, something that I endorse. 
in real life. If you're going to explore this part of your life, make sure that it's just role playing and that it's not a, a whole lifestyle and that you're not really a slave. That you can get away that if you, you need to. That, yeah, that you have your safe word and this really hurts. It's time to stop. Please don't bite my neck anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> or the back of my neck. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, actually, since you mentioned the back of the neck, I wanted to say one other thing about the vampires in my book is that they are, um, well, actually, there's only one. But the vampire is uh, not only uh, sustains herself on the blood, but it's actually the endorphins that are released during sex that sustain her. In one, one aspect, uh, an endorphin is considered an opiate. An opiate is a lot like opium. Uh, and I don't mean just the, the term, the sound of the word, but in, uh, in physiology, uh, the effect of, of taking opium has the same effect as a, a body's released chemical called an opiate. And she is addicted to the opiates that are released. What the vampire is going through is a little bit like addiction. Not only is she sucking out the chemicals that are released during sex, but she's also uh, really uh, sucking out uh, memories and exchanging memories. And um, I, while I uh, was studying psychology at the New School, I actually was involved in um, a number of memory studies um, where I would actually have to sacrifice rats and cut open their brains and look at the memory centers of their brains. So a lot of that came into play when I was uh, writing the book. What did you find? I found that the, uh, the, uh, the limbic system, um, which is responsible for the four Fs. I'm going to say the four Fs. Okay. Uh, fight, flight, fright, and sexual intercourse. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really controls the, the memory center. And um, the memories that are most profound to us are the ones that have the most uh, emotional resonance. Now, you went to Fordham. I did. Correct. I went to Fordham. Any writing at Fordham? I studied psychology at Fordham. I ah. had a master's, I, I got a, a BA in uh, psychology, and then I went on and got a master's degree in psychology from the New School for Social Research. But um, Yeah, that sounds like a, a, a surefire trail straight to vampire writing. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, everybody becomes a psychologist and psychiatrist, and then they write about vampires. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, one of my favorite courses at uh, Fordham was parapsychology, um, which, of course, is the study of um, things that go bump in the night, um, vampires and werewolves and ghosts. And really, it, it had a, an emphasis on ghosts. And that was with uh, uh, Father Healy. Um, he, he gave that course. And that was one of my favorite classes. So that, that stuck with me forever and ever. Um, and then... One of the things that I noticed when I was going to grad school and I got my master's degree is that everyone who was uh, in the program with me um, was not reading anything other than psychological texts. And I was walking around with novels. I was walking around with vampire novels. I was walking around with, you know, Laurel K. Hamilton. I was walking around with uh, Robert Ludlum. And everyone said, "What are you doing? You're reading novels. We're we're supposed to be reading. <laughs> we're reading Freud. And we're supposed Young. to be studying. We're ah. supposed to be studying. And I, I was doing well. I, I you know I, I graduated with you know with a 4.0. So I, I did definitely did my work. But I I just could not fathom the idea of like just living inside this box right. and not being able to uh, really." Relax your mind a bit with novels and, exactly. and, and, and touch on that other part of you that doesn't want to study, study, study. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I think also, just from uh, for anybody who's listening who wants to go into psychology, don't just study psychology. Um, people are not just 
just, just labels that you study. People are actual individuals and they have varied interests. And I think it's important for everyone to explore as many varied interests as possible, as long as they don't get into it. You don't get into trouble doing it. And that's also something I wanted to get into. You do mention some familiar uh, New York City places and bitter things. The book begins in Central Park. It does. Scott grows up on East Tremont in the Bronx. Yes, he does. Michelle grew up in the in Queens. Yes. And then um, something important happens in Grand Central on Vanderbilt. We're going to leave that alone because that's <laughs> I don't want to give anything away in the book. So talk to me about these themes, these New York themes. Well, also, Scott went to Fordham. That's true. Fordham University. That's too. true. Uh, and he was an outdoor uh, outdoor club um, president. President, mm-hmm. right? And I was a member of the outdoors club. So oh, were you? <laughs> so there are some bits of my autobiography that make it. Um, but again, uh, the idea was to to really narrow the focus and try to make the world in which uh, the vampire lives very realistic. And I was trying to make it something that my readers could relate to. And uh, I think horror really becomes much more horrific when it's part of somebody's life. One of the things that Stephen King does brilliantly is he really takes um, the characters and embeds them in today's world. Uh, From the Cheetos that they eat to the things that they watch on TV, everything about them is very relatable and and people go through those things. As a matter of fact, the the name of the book, Bitter Things, comes from a Swahili proverb, which I'm not going to say in Swahili, but I will say in English. He who eats bitter things gets sweet things too. And that really is the 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 thrust of the book that in order to get what the things that you need or the things that you want you have to make sacrifices you have to work hard to get it i floated by your window that evening in the dark my thanks to author andrew valentine who lives and writes in new york and graduated from fordham in 1988 his new book bitter things is available at bitterthingsthebook.com And a special thanks to Ellen Burke for her reading of Lord Byron's Darkness. Next week, we'll get ready for some football. Then the following week, Mary Wilson will be in the host seat. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarkey on 90.7 WFUV. You know.